Well, hello everyone and welcome to Gospel Community Providence. We are a small community of Jesus followers in Providence, Rhode Island. Our goal in life is to be the family of God, redeemed and transformed by Jesus, living out God's mission in our culture. You're listening to content created specifically for our church community, and the thoughts and teachings that you'll find here come from a study of the Bible that is informed by some of the best thinkers and followers of Jesus today and throughout church history. Just a heads up, you may hear a variety of voices and distractions and noises in the background. This is because we are a church of families with real lives full of children, noise, and interruptions. We celebrate these noises, however, because they remind us that real life is not a perfectly curated moment, but is full of opportunities to worship Jesus through the messy, unflattering, and mundane. In addition to this, you may hear the voices and comments of various audience members throughout the teaching. While this often causes our time to go a little long, it also deepens and enriches our time together as we discuss what we are learning and reflect on how to live it out. So bear with us. We are not professionals, but we are imperfect people who love and serve a perfect God. Let's go. in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are all here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thank you, D'Angela. Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, We're back into our study of Luke. Our goal has been and still is uh, to learn about Jesus, to study Jesus, whether you've known him for your entire life. uh, And he's just kind of become this like very familiar face, uh, very familiar character for you, or whether you're just new to, uh, to Jesus. We're, we're, we're looking at him, we're studying him, we're asking who is he, what is he like, what does he do, what does he say, uh, when does he get angry, when does he get joyful. We're just kind of trying to have a fresh start with our look at who Jesus is. And uh, before we jump into our passage this morning, um, I actually want to take a look at the Old Testament. Um, I think it's going to help us to understand our passage a little bit better. Uh, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the Old Testament, and then we'll jump into our text for this Sunday. Um, you know, at, at Gospel Community Church, we believe that all of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of the scriptures point to Jesus. Right, uh, The Old Testament through the prophecies, the promises, the foreshadowing all uh, set the stage for the coming of Jesus. And in the New Testament, we look back at the life of Jesus and we look back at what it ought to look like for us to live as a post-resurrection family of God. Right, So the, all of the scriptures are about Jesus. And um, 
All throughout the Old Testament, we see these examples of uh, these moments where God breaks through history uh, in incredible ways and makes himself known, reveals himself. Uh, The theological term for these moments is a theophany, right? A theophany, theo being God. So theophany is the appearance of God. And just as a little bonus fact, if, uh, if it is Christ who is appearing, if it's Jesus who is appearing, it's called a Christophany. Uh, and so uh, technically, all of the Old Testament consists of theophanies, right? It's God appearing, revealing himself to his people, to mankind in special ways. Uh, and then humanity, mankind, we record these appearances, record these encounters of what he did and what he said. And that is what we see in the scriptures, right? Each of these uh, Old Testament theophanies are unique. Uh, in their own ways. Uh, Together they contribute to our our understanding of uh, who God is and what he has planned for us. Uh, And even in their uniqueness though, they have some interesting similarities. Uh, Have you noticed as you read the scriptures how uh, every time God appears or an angel appears, usually something incredible happens along with that. Uh, And then at the same time, whoever God appears to is like shaking in their boots, terrified. Right? They are afraid of what they are experiencing, this fear of the Lord that is coming upon them. Think Moses and the bush, right? the burning bush, and Moses is terrified. Right? Think Isaiah uh, entering the heavenly throne room in a vision, and he is shaking in his boots because he knows he is unclean. Think of Mary when the, uh, when the angel Gabriel shows up to her, uh, and all of a sudden she is terrified. Right? These theophanies... Now, they're, uh, they're accompanied by uh, physical manifestations of God's raw power, right? Oftentimes, it's in the form of fire or smoke or clouds or some form of brilliance, right? This raw power of God. I just want to take a look at one example this morning, Exodus chapter 19. Before we jump into Luke, if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 19, Right. At this point in Exodus, the Israelites have been rescued out of the slavery in Egypt. Right? They've come to Mount Sinai where they're going to meet God and they're going to receive the law. Uh, and God tells them to prepare themselves to meet him. All right, up until this point, only Moses has, has had the opportunity to speak with God. And so I don't know if this is like accountability just to make sure Moses is not some like kook that's like just lost his marbles. Like we, we just want to make sure he's actually talking to God or, or what. But for some reason, God says, all right, we're going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce myself to the entire nation of Israel all at once. And he warns them. He gives them some strict and specific rules about how they're supposed to do it. He creates a boundary they're not supposed to cross. He tells them how they're supposed to. To meet with him and he tells him it's dangerous for them to break these rules right the, the folks over at the bible project do a great job talking about the holiness of god they use the example of the sun right if i get in my spaceship and i go towards the sun at some point if i don't have the right equipment if i don't follow the right rules the sun is going to destroy me right i'm going to burn up not because the sun is evil not because the sun is bad but because the sun is full of raw uncontained power Right, And so in the same way, when we approach God, when the Israelites approach God, there are rules. There are boundaries that are set in place to make sure that they are not destroyed by this raw power that they experience. And so we get to verse 16 of chapter 19, and it says this. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All right, I think you and I would as well. Uh, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And get this, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain greatly trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on, on the, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, so Moses went up. Can you imagine being there that day? Can you imagine experiencing this? Right? Picture in your mind, just close your eyes and picture in your mind the thunder and the lightning and the cloud that's covering the mountaintop, the fire in the distance. The earth is literally trembling, right? And they hear this loud trumpet sound and then they hear God's voice speaking to Moses. Imagine the level of fear you would experience. Right? Imagine the level of discomfort, right? You're like, okay, I, I get it. I get it. Right? God is not someone to be messed with. Right? He is other. He is special. He is powerful. Right? No wonder a couple of chapters later, the Israelites say to Moses, you know what, Moses, we're, we're good. Why don't you go ahead and meet with God? We'll stay back here and you tell us what he says. Right? They get to a point where they're like, we don't really want to experience that again. That was a little intense for us. We've seen enough. It was common in the Old Testament to have smoke or fire or clouds associated with the presence of God. And this overwhelming, terrifying, incredible display of God's presence was the physical manifestation of the glory of God. When you experience the glory of God, this is the kind of stuff that happens. I wonder if you had witnessed these kinds of displays If we witness these kinds of displays today, uh, I wonder, uh, do you think that you would ever doubt God? Do you think that you would ever, I don't know, uh, forsake him for a false idol? We would think... Probably not, right? I mean, if I, if I saw God manifest himself in this incredible way, I would probably, I'd probably be set for life, right? I, no need for any other evidence. I believe God exists. He is the only God. He's to be worshiped. Don't mess with him, right? And yet, uh, despite these theophanies, despite these appearances of God, uh, the people of Israel, they keep turning away from God time and time again. Right? One generation repents and submits, and a couple of generations later, they forget God. And they start this, this cycle of sin that, for those of us that have grown up in the church, we're very familiar with this cycle of sin in the, in the Old Testament. Right, The Israelites, they forget God for one reason or another. They turn to worshiping the false gods of their neighbors. Um, they ultimately experience some form of judgment from God. And the judgment's not meant to punish them as much as it's meant to redirect them back to God. And so eventually they repent, they turn back to God, and for at least a little while, they're on the right track until eventually they start the cycle over again. And this cycle, it repeats itself again and again and again throughout the Old Testament until we get to Ezekiel chapter 10, right? And if you recall in your Old Testament studies, 
right? When God, uh, when, when, the, when Solomon dedicates the temple of the Lord, an incredible theophany happens, right? The fire of the Lord descends and it fills the temple and it signifies that God is now taking residence in the temple. He is going to be among his people. And if you want to meet with God, if you want to find God, you can just go to the temple, offer the right sacrifices, and you could experience God. And so uh, as a result of these cycles of sin again and again and again, we get to this really sad scene in Ezekiel chapter 10 where the prophet Ezekiel is up on the mountaintop and he's looking over Jerusalem and he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. It leaves, right? God leaves from the temple and he never returns again. Right? This leads to a 400 year period of silence. For 400 years, there are no theophanies. There's no contact with God. There's no prophets, right? That's longer than the U.S. has been in existence, okay? 400 years of nothing until Jesus. All of a sudden, we get to the New Testament and there are angels showing up, declaring the birth of Jesus Uh, to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds. This is the first time that God reveals himself in this way in over 400 years. It's incredible, okay? So for the last couple of weeks, jumping into Luke now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been working on this question, who is this man, right? The crowds are asking it. King Herod is asking Uh, The disciples were asking it. And last week, uh, Jesus invited his disciples to come to a conclusion. He said, you know, who do you say that I am? Uh, And they concluded that based on what they had seen and heard, uh, Jesus has got to be the Christ of God. Even uh, it's not quite clear in the text whether they really understand what that means yet. But they're at least in the right ballpark. Right? They understand that he is the promised Messiah. They understand that he is the one who would rescue and redeem God's people. And so we find ourselves about a week after this point. Right? They have this great revelation, this great confession moment. And a week later, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Uh, and the experience they're going to have is one that they will absolutely never forget. I want to pray for us. And we're going to jump into our text. Um, Lord Jesus, this is your word and this is your holy scripture. We submit ourselves to it. We trust it. We believe that the words that we are reading are a revelation of who you are and what you are like and what you want us to be like. And so we ask Jesus that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, would manifest himself within our hearts. And as we read these scriptures, would, would burn the truth within us. And lead us to a place of obedience and submission and humility and worship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Let's jump right in. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And again, we're seeing here this rhythm that Jesus has of 
of getting away, of spending time in, in, in silence and solitude, of isolating and, and going into a, a quiet and remote place to spend time with the Father, to pray and just to, to rest, right? This is a rhythm that Jesus does time and time again. And it almost looks from this passage like it's, like it's a weekly rhythm. It's not quite clear, but it almost looks like once a week, Jesus tries to get away to go spend time with Jesus in prayer. I wonder what that would look like for us to do that right there and how that would transform our hearts, right? And so in this scenario, Jesus leaves all of his disciples behind except for three of them, right? Peter, John, and James. Um, And these are three, listen, Jesus has got 12 disciples, right? There's no way that he can equally invest himself into all 12 and to be able to teach them all that they need to know. And so it it becomes clear as you read the New Testament that, that Jesus selects three of his disciples that stand out as leaders, Peter, John, and James. They stand out as leaders. And he actually breaks down his team of 12 into three teams of four, right? It's almost like they're three gospel community groups, Right, that are meeting together, that are going through their, uh, through, their, through their experience with Jesus. And so Jesus would spend some extra time with Peter, John, and James. And then each of those three would then go to their team and spend time teaching and training and leading them uh, in the following Jesus. And so in this particular case, Jesus takes just the three uh, with him into this special situation. So let's keep reading. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Right. So Jesus is praying. He's spending time uh, just, just with the Father. He's spending time in silence and solitude. And the veil is pulled back and we get a glimpse at Jesus in glory. This is Jesus' eternal self, right? Literally, his face changes its appearance, right? His clothing changes, right? The Greek here, uh, I think the NIV does a good job with this, but the Greek here says his clothing kind of looked like lightning, Right? Imagine staring at lightning. You're just wearing lightning today, right? That's, a, that's the fashion of the day. And so as, as all of this is happening, two men appear and they begin to have a conversation with Jesus. And uh, we have no idea how they recognize them as Moses and Elijah. Obviously, Moses and Elijah have been dead for a very long time. Maybe they were wearing name tags. Uh, maybe uh, they just like looked like a Moses and an Elijah. That guy kind of has a Moses look to him, you know? I don't know. Um, it doesn't really actually matter how they recognized him. Uh, what matters is who is there and what they're discussing, right? The fact that it's Moses and Elijah that appear is not an accident. It's actually very intentional and very significant. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, uh, you know that Moses is probably one of the most revered Israelites of all time. All right, he is special in every way. Right? He's special to the point where he is the author of the first five books of the Bible. How many books of the Bible have you written? I haven't written any. Okay? Uh, Moses wrote five of them. Right, it's called the Pentateuch. He is the one who records the Ten Commandments. He writes the 600 plus laws that govern the Israelites for centuries to come. Right, he has a very unique and very intimate relationship with God. To the point where God literally calls him his friend. Moses is a friend of God. And it makes sense because we learn in, uh, in, uh, in the Pentateuch that Moses was actually um, 
uh, one of the humblest men to ever walk this earth. And, and if we know from the scriptures that God is opposed to the proud, he hates those who are prideful. And so it would make sense to me that if there's a person who is the humblest man of all time, that he would be a close friend of God. Right? Moses was that man. He had encounter after encounter with God. Right? The burning bush, the Exodus story, his mountaintop encounters with God at Mount Sinai. At one point, he even asks God, I want to see your glory. And Moses, God is like, you can't handle all of my glory. So I'm just going to let you see just the back of me as I walk by and hope that that doesn't kill you. Right? So he sees the back of God and literally for weeks, his face is shining as if it is radioactive. Right? Does some of this language sound familiar? At, he, Moses had such a unique and important relationship with God that at his death, the scriptures tell us that, uh, that God himself buried Moses and nobody knew where his body was buried. Can you imagine having such a relationship with God the Father that he's the one who orchestrates and coordinates and plans your funeral? Right, that is a special relationship. Elijah, right? Elijah also has a unique relationship with God. Um, he is known as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle. He has a ton of miracles uh, behind his name. Um, interestingly, he also got to meet God at Mount Sinai. Uh, and there's this one crazy story. I actually was talking to uh, Carrie and Greg, no, uh, to uh, Breton and Micah about this. Uh, this week, this this story where um, where he's battling five hundred prophets of Baal at one time by himself, right? And they have like a sacrifice off. Uh, where like, you know, they both put a sacrifice on an altar and they say, you know, whichever God is real, he's going to respond by taking up the sacrifice and whichever God doesn't respond is fake. And so that we'll just have a little test here. And the prophets of Baal, they spend an entire day uh, begging and pleading and going through the rituals and even beating themselves. And in the meantime, Elijah's in the background kind of making fun of them a little bit. Um, and then ultimately nothing happens. And so Elijah prays over his sacrifice, and God responds. You know how? He responds with fire from heaven. Right? This is a theophany moment. Right? Fire from heaven consumes the offering, and literally uh, the Israelites turn around and they uh, slaughter the 500 prophets of Baal because they recognize them as false prophets. He has a unique relationship with God, Elijah. He had such a unique relationship that he's actually one of two people in the Bible that it says he didn't actually technically experience death. Right? Elijah was walking with Elisha, his, his apprentice, once uh, one day, and a chariot from heaven comes down and takes him away. He doesn't die. He's just taken away to heaven. Right? Talk about an interesting and special relationship with God. Right, the reason why these two were important is because throughout the scriptures, we see that uh, whenever we're referring to the Old Testament, uh, the, the language used to talk about the scriptures was Moses and the prophets, right? Or they would say the law and the prophets. And whenever you see that phrase in the New Testament or in the Bible, that, that's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, Right? And so Moses at the transfiguration at this moment in Luke, Moses is a representative of the law and Elijah is a representative of the prophets. 
Together, they represent all of the scriptures that are consulting with Jesus about his upcoming departure. Right, it's interesting that the, the Greek word used for departure here is actually the word exodus. Right? What does Moses know about the exodus? Right? What does Elijah know about departing in a unique way? Right? It's so, there's layers upon layers of illusions and, and, and significant things that are happening here that we can't even get into. Right? Whatever their conversation consisted of, they were acknowledging together that Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection were the ultimate fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. Right? And Moses and Elijah, they appear as witnesses that are giving their approval of Jesus' role. Let's read on. Verse 32. Uh, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw the, his glory and the two men who stood with him. Uh, and as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Right? Luke is being gracious here. Right? These three guys were sound asleep. Right? Luke is like, eh, they're a little groggy. No, they, were, they were sound asleep. Right? The Greek here is they were, they were heavy with sleep. And so they wake up almost like you, know, you and me in fourth grade English class. You wake up and you realize something important is happening. I need to respond. I don't know how to do it. And so they wake up and, Luke, and Peter just starts talking. Uh, he's, he realizes that Moses and Elijah are there. He realizes this is a significant moment. Uh, and so he starts a sentence without knowing where he's going with it, really. He offers to make three tents for them, right? And so uh, this, is, this is interesting because uh, what Peter is doing here is he's just recognized that Moses and Elijah are present. These are, these are two of the greats of the Old Testament, Right? Think of the best, the greatest people you can think of. Moses and Elijah would be up there. And he is thinking in his mind that, I, that Jesus must be one of the greats as well. Right? He must be at, on an, at least an equal level with Moses and Elijah. So we're going to build three tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. So we can keep this party going for a little bit longer. Uh, and what Peter thinks is that he's elevating Jesus to the level of one of the greatest in Judaism. When in reality... Peter's actually demoting Jesus without realizing it. Right? Jesus is not on par with Moses and Elijah. Right? They're not even playing in the same playing field. Right? They're not even playing the same game. Jesus is so holy and entirely in a different category that to compare him to the other two is simply ridiculous. As we're about to find out. Verse 34, and as he is saying these things, as he's putting his foot into his mouth, right, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Listen, guys, this, this is imagery here, right? This is supposed to point us back to all of those times in the Old Testament that God appears, right? And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Right? Even, as they are t even as Peter is talking, the scene around them changes. Right? Uh, listen to the language. The cloud came and overshadowed them. Right? They were afraid, terrified. Right? A voice came from the heavens. What does this sound like? This sounds like one of the theophanies of old. 
Right? This is the thing of Old Testament story. This is the revelation of God Almighty to his people. Right? Jesus is not just like Moses and Elijah. He is completely and wholly other. Right? Think of the greatest of the greats of the scriptures. Even expand out beyond that. Think of the greatest and best heroes of all time. Think of the best person you could possibly think of. Mother Teresa, who else? I don't know. Think of whoever you can think of that is probably the best individual of all time and realize that Jesus is better. All right, so what does God the Father tell us about Jesus? He makes three important statements. Number one, he says, this is my son. And this is actually a reference to a messianic psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 2, written by King David. And it referred, in this psalm, uh, King David refers to the Messiah as God's son. Right? And this reveals just how unique and special Jesus' relationship is with God the Father. Right? Moses may have been a friend of God, but Jesus is his son. He's not simply a prophet. He's the son of God. Right? David, King David, one of the greats, is saying this. Number two, God says he is my chosen one. This is a reference to Isaiah 42, uh, which describes the Messiah as God's chosen servant. And this servant, he's going to bring delight to the Father's soul. He's going to have the Spirit of God upon him. He's going to bring forth justice to the nation's Even the religious leaders who reject Jesus and crucify him, at his crucifixion, they recognize that this is what Jesus was claiming to be. Right In Luke 24, they say, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Right, We are told Jesus is God's son, he is his chosen one, and then we get the only command in this passage. Listen to him. Listen to him. Uh, and this sounds like a simple reference, uh, a simple statement, but it's actually also a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses is teaching his people, and he talks about an, a, a coming prophet who is going to be the prophet of prophets, the ultimate prophet that is from God. And he tells the people that when he comes, it is to him that you will listen. And the language is identical. One commentator says this, with these illusions appearing in one context, a mosaic figure appears who is also the suffering servant and the Davidic royal figure appearing at the end of times. These paradigms help to clarify the mission of Jesus, even though by themselves they are inadequate to explicate fully his significance. By themselves, these are great statements. All together, it's like emphatic upon emphatic upon emphatic of who Jesus is. And imagine for a moment with me, you're you're experiencing this, you're surrounded by a cloud, you're hearing the voice booming, uh, and all of a sudden everything fades away and you're left with just Jesus in front of you. Just Jesus. I have no idea uh, if they fully understood the significance of their confession a week earlier, uh, but I think that they would have no doubt at this point of who Jesus is. He's not just a prophet. He's not John the Baptist. He is God. He's like none other. This affects them so deeply uh, that when they leave the mountaintop, they can't even 
express what just happened to them. They, they keep silent about it. They don't know how to process it. Their circuits are overloaded. Right? It's not until years later in his life that Peter is reflecting on this particular event and he writes about it in the, uh, in the letter of 2 Peter in chapter 1. And he says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right? For when he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, I didn't make any of this up. Right? We were eyewitnesses. We're just telling you what we saw. Right? We saw Jesus' majesty. We heard the voice of God the Father. We were there. And just in case you and I get frustrated about the fact that we weren't there, that we don't get to experience God in this way, Peter says this, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to, uh, to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, you don't need to have a mountaintop experience like this to have confidence in who Jesus is. Says you have the scriptures, the prophetic word, and we see these prophecies confirmed and fulfilled in Jesus. This is not just someone's interpretation, right? This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. So what does all of this mean for you and me? We've been answering this question, who is this man? And I hope your answer is right, okay? Uh, and I think the way that we know if our answer is right is what happens within me when I come to my conclusion, right? If, my, if what happens within me is not worship, I wonder if I have a wrong, mis a wrong perception of who Jesus is, right? It all comes down to worship. Jesus is not just my buddy-buddy that I get to hang out with whenever I feel bored. He's not just some you know, inspiring historical character that I want to try to live up to because he lived a really cool and good life. He's not just a good teacher with great thoughts to share. Jesus is God, right? And he is to be worshipped. And yet, even as I say all of this, and it is true, does it blow your mind that he also calls you and me friend? Right? While we were his enemies, he came for us. He loved us. He died for us. He called us to himself and he called us friend. Right? I get to hold him both in the high regard and awestruck humility of recognizing that he is God and also be blown away by his affection and love towards me, right? Both of those things lead me to worship. 
Right? This morning, uh, I want you to walk away asking yourself one question. And I put this question into our Sunday guide. Right? As I think about who Jesus is to me, does the Jesus that I claim to follow cause me to fall to my knees in worship? Right? If not, maybe I have a misperception of who Jesus is. If not, maybe I've bought into a lie about Jesus. Or maybe I've toned Jesus down to a level that I can bear, that I can put into my little box, and, uh, and that I'm fine with that. You know, it's interesting to me that the concept of the fear of the Lord and the concept of worship in the scriptures are very similar. Right? Uh, we will never worship something that we do not fear. And I don't mean that in a scared of retribution kind of way, fear. I mean that in an utter respect and filled with awe kind of way. Does the Jesus that you claim to follow cause you to fall to your knees in worship? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Thank you so much that we get to see you in your full glory here in this passage and recognize you as uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as God himself, who is worthy of our worship and our submission and our, and our praise. And at the same time, you are also uh, the shepherd who comes after us, this, the one lost sheep. You're, the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the, the God who calls us friend. You pursue us and you love us and you welcome us into a relationship with you. And it is these two things that we hold in tension as we uh, turn to you and say, we, we, just, we just need to fall on our knees and worship you. Holy Spirit, would you help us to know this Jesus? Would it draw, drop us to our knees in worship? Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.